This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 182. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. Super excited that you're here to learn about apartment building investing, the best way to become financially free with real estate. Today on the show is someone who exemplifies this because within a year of getting started with multifamily, he has enough money from his investments to cover his living expenses and then some. And it's amazing how quickly people are able to literally quit their jobs, become financially free achieve their goals in an unbelievably rapid time. Typically, most people between one and two years of getting started with multifamily, they've replaced their income, they've quit their job. It's just amazing. It's the most direct route to quitting your job. And it's for anyone who's thinking real estate. And uh, you can do it without any prior experience in any of your cash. And that's what I found really exciting. I always thought when I was flipping houses, we flipped like three dozen houses in three years that it would prepare me. I would take that and I would graduate to the advanced art of apartment building investing. And so I called my brokers and I'm, hey, broker, I'm the man. And the broker would say, hey, demand, that's great uh, that you flipped all these houses, but how many apartment buildings have you done? And I was like, well, none, but look at all the houses I flipped. And they would say, well, that's great, Michael. Send me a proof of funds and I'll send you the deals I have. And I'm like, crap. I didn't have any proof of funds at the time due to my restaurant debacle. And so I was kind of dead in the water. And now looking back on it, I was a, I was making all kinds of mistakes. Number one, I wasn't using the right language. I felt like that single family house investing world would prepare me for that. And it didn't. I thought that I was the man when it's in this business, not about you. It's about the team that you've built. And I didn't understand any of those things. Now understanding those, we're able to teach this to our students and our YouTube videos and, and now in the podcast. It's all about educating yourself using the right language, which doesn't cost a lot of money. And you know you can do it in 30 days. Same thing with building your team. Build a team. I mean, imagine having a proper manager with you who manages 5,000 units in town and you drop that person's name when you're talking to a broker. The broker goes, oh yeah, I know Ben. Oh yeah, he's a great guy. I've done a bunch of business with him. And that's how you approach these brokers. And so David kind of talks about some of these things because he was kind of an eager beaver and uh, his mentor was kind of, you know, pausing him a little bit. Hey, you, you need to really make sure that you educate yourself before you start calling these brokers. But I love this because uh, David Camaro is our guest today and he's actually an immigrant to this country, he had $1,000 when he came here, worked himself up uh, through management consulting and then got into real estate, single family investing like so many of us, and then finally realized the insanity of those things. And it's an interesting trigger point appears to be our kids. And this typically happens when we're in our mid-30s, we start having children and we working a lot because we want to earn a lot. And then we finally realize that, man, this earning money is not everything there is. Because as we're working and slaving and earning money, we're missing our kids grow up. And that triggers and wakes a lot of people up and going, hey, gosh, you know, I need to do something. I can't just buy a townhouse one a year. If I do that, it's going to take me 10, 15, 20 years to actually replace my income, cover my expenses. What else is there? And the answer that we all come to quietly, secretly, is multifamily apartment buildings. And David, it was no exception to that rule. And he describes his journey in that transition from the single family house investing space and then his unbelievable ability to do deals and replace his income. Uh, within 12 months of getting started, he did uh, four deals. 
And it's just, it's just amazing. And we talk a little bit about that law of the first deal and how powerful that was. And my, my gosh, when he closed that first deal, brokers are calling him, investors are calling him. It's just amazing. It's this law of the first deal is so powerful. This is why I tell everyone watching, listening to this, just focus on your first deal because everything will literally follow. In fact, David tried not to do his second deal. <laughs> and like I sometimes joke, you have to expend more energy not to do your second deal than simply do it. And he was trying to expend energy not to do the second deal because he wanted to stabilize the first one. <laughs> and it just came to him. In fact, it was it was so ironic. It wasn't just one deal that came, but two. So essentially, he was working two deals <laughs> at the same time fascinating journey and it's it's amazing because we talk about some of the mindset challenges and, and hiccups that we have what those were and how you overcame them so let's get right into the interview it's super super fascinating let's get an interview with david camara here we go david welcome to the show today thank you thanks michael i'm very happy that you're having me on yeah this is great uh you know you've done so much in so little time i think it's your story is gonna be so inspiring to everyone listening and watching to this wind back the clock a little bit Think back to when you first got started with real estate investing, and I already know kind of where the story is going. It's like so many people, you start investing in single family houses. What was going on at the time? Why did you want to start investing? And what was kind of your initial plan when you got started? So I first really got interested in, in the whole buying property thing when we bought a, our personal house, my wife and I. Uh, we bought a house in 2004 in the suburbs of Chicago. And I read a few books at the time after we closed because it was at the time it was 5% down. You could leverage basically 95%. Um, and it made a lot of sense. And from a personal perspective, I didn't grow up in the United States. I grew up in Ukraine, Sierra Leone. So there's always an entrepreneurial spirit. I used to sell cigarettes when I was 12. I used to sell soft drinks at my dad's hospital, drove an ice cream truck, that kind of thing. So I wanted to do something where it was something that I owned. And I really got interested in the whole real estate experience at that time. So I attended a bunch of conferences, read a number of books, and felt like this was something I could do. So I think it was two years after we bought our personal house that we bought two, uh, one duplex and one threeplex in Northwest Indiana. And I knew that it was a bit of a risk, but it wasn't, I was risking too much money and I knew I'd learn a ton from it. So that's, that's kind of how I got into it. Why did you want to get into real estate investing? What was your goal? Um, the goal at that point was eventually to be able to scale up to be a bit more passive. I've always been fascinated by kind of people that have built wealth and disproportionately a lot of those folks seem to have come from real estate. So really the plan was buy a house a year type of thing if possible. And really I was convinced that it worked, especially having seen our house. There's not that many expenses. I'm a math type of guy, and you can analyze those things fairly easily without too many variables as in a traditional business. So it was appealing to me from a perspective of, as an immigrant, you could own a, a little piece of the American dream, a little piece of America, so to speak. And uh, that was really the goal, is eventually to at some point be able to not have to necessarily work for somebody else. So what happened to that plan? How did it work? Sure. <laughs> At the time, so in 2006, when we bought the, those duplexes, it was a bit of a learning experience, right? So this was a lower income area, uh, dealing with tenants, dealing with some municipalities, some of the people who are in income assistance for their housing. Um, but I was able to manage it still myself, but really got disenchanted with some of the day-to-day -day of property management and really, frankly, some of the tenants, right? Weren't the best people and weren't the most hardworking people but still believed in the plan. Um, life happened, uh, got a different job. The recession happened. We ended up moving to Michigan. We had two kids. So the original plan was to keep buying a house a year. I think I bought another house in 2007. 
which was in an auction, which was actually a really interesting experience. It was a house that I was looking at buying. Originally, I'd gone in, seen the house, but then drove by it like two weeks later and it was, had an auction sign in front of it. I said, I should check this out. So go in and this big convention center in Chicago, whole auction process, kind of like what you see in the movies. Do I have a this? Do I have a 2000? You can really get lost in that. But I ended up winning the bid and that property I still have. It's a really good property. However, after that, again, like I said, had kids, moved to Michigan. The plan kind of fell to the wayside a little bit. Um, by 2016, I bought another single family and we, we moved from Chicago to Michigan. So we ended up renting the house we lived in. So we accumulated at that point seven houses or seven units, um, but it definitely wasn't as quick as we had anticipated or as I had, would have liked. So how did your plan change? The plan changed in, in, I guess, many different ways. So in 2009, I graduated business school and got a much more time demanding job and that required a lot of travel. So I became a management consultant, um, which again, I realized was going to be a bit of a change to the work family dynamic. However, my wife and I thought it'd be a good thing to try. Ended up traveling quite a bit all over the country. The job, of course, paid very well. However, like we re I really didn't have much control of where I was going to be. I think one, one year I traveled 48 weeks out of the year. I was getting mm. uh, all these statuses at hotels and even more so than my partners. Uh, they were asking me, how am I getting all these room upgrades? Which is not a good place to be. Like You don't want to be traveling that much, really. So while you kind of get wrapped up in this professional thing that, oh, you're kind of climbing the career ladder and you're making good money, what was suffering for me was the, the work-life side of it. We continue to have kids and we have four, four children now, four girls. Um, and it wasn't as much time as I would have liked to spend with them at home. So while I was able to quit being employed by a management consulting company, I opened my own management consulting company. So I was able to get a little bit more leeway in terms of when I went where. However, I still had to be places without really having too much say as to where I was when. And so I had started having those conversations with really my kids. My, my daughter, my eldest daughter, Bridget, would ask, Dad, are you, do you have to go to work tomorrow? Tomorrow being Monday, this is on a Sunday night. And it wasn't a really pretty conversation. I mean, it was, it was a conversation that left you thinking about really what are we really trying to do here, right? What's the goal? is the goal to be away from my family as much as I can and make as much money? I don't think so. So then I really started thinking about that a bit more and started coming back to the plan and saying, how come I haven't done more of this investing thing? And I stumbled on your podcast actually. And, and uh, a lot of what you said there resonated with me in terms of being able to scale up much more quickly with multifamily rather than single family. Interesting. Is that when you decided that you were going to scale up with multifamily? What was, what was that plan in your head? How, how did that evolve? Yeah, so um, I remember very well where I was. <laughs> I was in a project in northern Illinois. It was 10 miles south of the Wisconsin border. It was a large food manufacturer, dairy processing plant. And I was there for a little bit over a year. I was there when my third daughter was born. And to try and keep past the time while in the middle of cornfields, I started running these different races. And as I was running, I, I wasn't listening to music. I was listening more to podcasts. I was listening to your podcast, but also I was thinking about the amount of time I was spending training for marathons. And I basically said to myself, if I spent the same amount of hours really focused on real estate as I'm doing on running, I have no doubt that I can accomplish whatever goals I set myself to. And so I knew that 
I had to do that. So basically at that point, I really got more into your podcast. I listened to, I think, every single one, listened to a few others, bought the SDA and said, yeah, I need to do this. And I actually promised myself that I would stop running any marathons until I could work for myself, until I no longer had to, because I, w- I was already working for myself. But I said, I wouldn't run another marathon until I didn't have to travel for work. Powerful. It's funny. It's like I, we, we think our goal is to be, quote, a real estate investor and worker for ourselves. And that's not really the goal. The real goal is financial freedom, right? It's being able to do what we want when we want to do it. And I was the same way when I started flipping houses. Like, oh, I'm a real estate investor. Woohoo. And then I discovered that that's not even the actual goal because flipping houses is a lot, a lot of work. And, and so you were already working for yourself. You're like, okay, I'm working for myself, but that's not actually where I wanted to, where I wanted to go. And so what did, how, what did you do to get started? So what were in your mind? What were some of your biggest challenges or mental blocks that you had? And then how did you attempt to get over them? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. There's, there's several mental blocks, I think. One definitely was that you could borrow a lot more money for a lot bigger projects more easily, right? That was something that I did not know and definitely learned from your podcast was that, I mean, for essentially non-recourse loans, right? So that you can borrow more money, more favorable rates if you were over a million dollars in, in loan amount. Um, that was very eye-opening and interesting to, to know. And typically, how do we make sure that we have the down payment, right? Like, where am I going to get the money, right? So that was a big one. And, and for me, for that particular one, that wasn't so much of an issue. So since I'd been working for myself, there'd been a lot of really good cash flow from the business. Um, however, I plowed a lot of that money into my house and we'd done a big, re- massive renovation of our house. And it was also a topic of conversation with my wife, which was, hey, should we have bought something or should we invest in our house? And of course, it's like a, it's a tug of war type of situation. It's hard to not invest in your house. That's where you live. That's where you spend your time. But then after that, the discussion was when we're done investing in our house, should we really consider that as a draw, as a home equity line of credit to go buy a building that would essentially take me off the road as much? And we had that conversation. My wife was on board and um, that's what we did. Hmm, interesting. So how did you get started then? You, you were listening to obviously some, some podcasts here. What were some of the first steps that you, that you did? Yeah, so I was listening to the podcast. I bought the online course. I did most of that course. I don't think I did all of it. I got a bit impatient with just listening to the audios and- Listening thought, to me to go on and on for hours on end. <laughs> no, I think the course was great. I, I thought it was just like, I'm a very action-oriented person, so I wanted to do stuff. So I think I did more of the looking at LoopNet, getting whatever decks I could and analyzing deals. And frankly, a lot of the deals that I originally analyzed just didn't make the hurdles, right? So stumbling block there was a lot of these deals don't, don't work. Like, am I doing something wrong or what do I have to do differently? Um, but then finally, I got into a few deals that seemed to make sense from the numbers perspective. And I guess the next thing that really made me accelerate that whole trajectory was I knew that I was ready to do something. I knew that we had the money that we could potentially draw from the home equity line in our house. The next thing really was attending the Freedom Summit that I went to, which was your, your seminar. That was in 2018, I think it was April. That's right, and, you, and then you decided to start working with our, our mentoring program. I think uh, Josh Sterling, actually, you were working with, with him. And if I remember correctly, Josh flew in with his private plane to the Financial Freedom Summit 
And since you guys are both from Michigan, he goes, oh, why don't you hop on? And so you got like a private flight back home. <laughs> this plane. Yeah. That was part of it. So I had heard Josh on, I'm not sure what podcast. So when I was like, wow, this is this, here's this guy from Michigan. So I'd heard his podcast and I found his story quite interesting and frankly inspiring. And then I was at the meet and greet of your event. And I think I'd seen that Josh was a, a mentor. And so we got introduced and he was like, hey, I'm Josh. I'm like, hold on, you're the pilot. So he was taken aback because he didn't realize or he didn't expect me to know him. So we struck up a conversation and he's like, yeah, I'm actually here and I did fly in and I'm flying back on Sunday or whatever day it was, which was the same day I was going back on. So um, yeah, it definitely worked out. <laughs> That's awesome. So you started, guys started working together. And so let's talk about kind of your activity once you really got started. You, you, before you were looking at LoopNet. And then you start working with Josh. What are some of the steps leading up to that first deal that uh, that you did? Sure. So I started. I mean, I think I think the the benefit to me of the program was that I knew that I was going to potentially be able to fumble my way through this, right? But I knew that I was going to make mistakes and I was going to go much more slowly because I'd be much more careful and not know where to find the right answers. And so I think what really helped me with the program was that. I could call somebody who's done it before and ask them questions on the specific issue that I was encountering. So when I got into the, the mentorship or mentoring program, I immediately started looking at deals that I could send LOIs out to. And I think Josh was also a bit taken aback and at first was like, hey, you need to make sure you go through the course and complete it because I hadn't still completed the course. But I was pretty comfortable, right? And so, so I sent out a few LOIs and uh, I think it was within a month that I got, I think it was June beginning, when I got the first LOI accepted for a property, which was 40 units, $2 million purchase, uh, all three and four bedroom townhouses, which was about 100 miles from my house. So Im immediately I, I started doing that and he had to hold me back a little bit to say, are you comfortable? Are you sure? But again, the deal made a lot of sense. So there was not a good reason not to do it. So in your mind, what were your biggest hurdles in doing this deal? What, what was going through your mind at the time and, and how did you try to overcome those that gave you the confidence to move ahead with this deal? Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, it's the first deal. It's definitely one that was very nerve wracking. I had to talk to my wife about it. Um, I said, hey, the numbers look good. So the questions were, how do we know that the numbers actually will work? The owner had just raised, I think their monthly rent roll in the, in the more recent months was better than before. So really trying to understand that. They had turned some units, they had had some units vacant. But then really what, what really gave me the courage to do it was there's a complex not too far from this one that had rents that were $100 higher than this one was charging. And so I went down there, put an application to be a resident there. They walked me through the units and I was very confident that we could probably do something very similar. So while their units were a bit more updated, they had one less half bath. So these units that they were renting were three bedroom, one bath, four bedroom, one bath. Ours were three and a half, three bedroom, one and a half baths, four bedroom, one and a half baths. And uh, I later found out from the seller that our units were built as officer quarters while the others were built as essentially cadet quarters. So I felt like with, they also had a waiting list actually in that apartment complex. And so I felt like if we spent some money on some renovations, we could definitely get to a place where we could command very similar rents. So that really gave me a lot of courage to go ahead and, and do it. Um, and again, while it's not in a major metropolitan area, Battle Creek is headquarters of 
Kellogg cereal. So it's a major employer and there's a lot there. It's not, it's not a little town in the middle of nowhere. Um, so again, just driving around, I felt, I felt a lot of courage to do it because it just seemed like there was definitely enough demand. And again, we're not charging $2,000 rents. The, the average rent there at the time was $815 for a three or four bedroom townhouse, which is pretty inexpensive. Yeah, sounds like a good deal. Sounds like there's a lot of upside and you're able to verify that upside quite a bit. You know, I, I remember when I was flipping houses, at like three dozen of them, and I would call these commercial brokers when I started shifting to multifamily and they were like, yeah, that's great, Michael. How many multifamily have you done? I'm like, I don't know, but look at all these houses I flipped. They're like, you know, send me your proof of funds and we'll send you the deal, which is basically now I know in, in retrospect, that's what brokers do to get rid of you. Did that happen to you at all? How were you able to get your brokers to take you seriously? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, I think the mentoring program helped quite a bit. In the program, you essentially help students navigate that, right? Um, basically, you, you teach students how to, I mean, be very upfront and say, we're working with high net worth individuals. And even though I was doing this deal with my money, I still went that route and said, I'm working with high net worth individuals. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I'm not looking for. So there wasn't as much scrutiny, although there was definitely some scrutiny. So the, the broker did ask a few more questions. And at one point, he was like, well, there's another buyer who's interested, who I have experience with. Um, and I said, listen, first of all, I'm not interested to be in a bidding situation. I was very upfront with it and told them, like, I don't care to be in a bidding war. I'm not going to do that. I work with private equity buyers or businesses all the time. And that's a situation they avoid like the plague because it's not a good one for them. So I was able to get some credibility with that. But I think the other thing actually that, that was helpful, my mentor, Josh, had actually bought a few deals from the same broker. Hmm. And so he said, hey, if you really need to, I can introduce you to the managing broker of this office and we can have that introduction. I don't think I needed that introduction at that time. But once the LOI was accepted, I did have Josh kind of send an intro and say, hey, here, this is David is definitely serious and um, you guys take it from there. But Definitely, there was a bit more scrutiny up front. And I think the main one is, like you say, they ask for proof of funds and that kind of thing. But I was able to get around that saying, I'm working with high net investors and I don't necessarily have all the money up front right now. In my case, I didn't have my home equity line lined up right now. I knew how much I could get, but I hadn't exactly taken it out yet. So that's great. I think you used, uh, used the right language, it sounds like, and it kind of uh, made that proof of funds go away. And we see that all the time when you sound halfway intelligent, you don't sound like a newbie, and you're talking about yourself in terms of your team, it just goes away. So yeah, well done on that. Uh, how did the closing go? And um, any hiccups there? Was it relatively smooth or what, what happened uh, through close? Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually a relatively smooth deal up to the close and then on the day of close there was there was a there's a major hiccup so the hiccup was that the seller who himself is a realtor and is an older gentleman i guess he didn't read his contract he didn't read the purchase and sales agreement but of course we are taught in the course and through the mentoring program to make sure that in the psa the purchase and sales agreement we make sure that when you close, rents are prorated as of the day of close, right? So essentially, I think we closed on the 4th of October. So the seller was very upset to find out that he owed us all of October's rent, right? <laughs> so, so he was essentially at the point of saying he wouldn't show up for closing. Like he, he didn't care. It was not going to happen. He hadn't collected everything. I'm like, well, listen, this has been in the contract for over three months and your attorney approved it. And he had an attorney who, again, was a, probably an older gentleman 
hadn't necessarily paid attention to that clause or maybe hadn't explained it to the seller. But again, I wanted to do the deal. I told them, I said, listen, at the end of the day, when the month is done, everyone ends up with the same cash position. It's only a matter of whether the money is collected up front or at the end of the month. And while I understand you may have poor collection proceedings or procedures that you may not have collected all the rents by the 4th, that's what the contract states. So here's what I'm proposing we do. You escrow those funds, and then we'll work with you every week on a weekly basis to see what funds we've received, what funds you've received, and we'll true it up. So that ended up pleasing him enough. He came to close, and we worked with him through that month to make sure that we were clear as to who received what monies when. But yeah, he was very upset, and uh, I haven't experienced that situation since. Um, I think he was a little bit of an unsophisticated seller. Um, again, he was a realtor. He bought these. Um, there are ten buildings. There are ten buildings of four units each, and he had bought them with his sons over a period of time. But I mean, ended up being a great person to work with, and everything worked out. That's great. That's great. So, so first deal. So that's really awesome. What difference did that first deal make to you in terms of what happened next? Yeah. So that deal went really well. I started getting, I think, calls from brokers saying, "Oh, congratulations! You closed this deal." Uh, we have these other deals. Uh, they started sending me things. So that that became nice. People, I guess it gives you, gives you credibility. Uh, personally, I was I was in a kind of situation where I was thinking, okay, I'd like to have this deal perform and have some track record before I did anything else. But then, uh, again, I spoke to Josh and we were talking and I, was, I kept looking at deals. I was working in Chicago at a project in Chicago at the time. And I had lived in Chicago, so I knew the area, and I hadn't really seen anything that made sense from a numbers perspective, from a cash flow perspective, cash and cash return. But then I found one that did, and I ran it by Josh, and he was like, yeah, this definitely makes sense. Is there a reason why you wouldn't do it? <laughs> so I thought about that really hard again. And again, I had the, the down payment to do it from the consulting side of the business. Um, so I said, yeah, I mean, I guess there really isn't a good reason not to do that. So truly, before I knew it, I was writing another LOI. I met with the broker in Chicago, and we hit it off. The deal was a good deal. So we had that under contract. Um, I think it was December 12th-ish, so literally a month and a half after Amazing. it got under contract. But at the same time, the broker who sold me the first deal, he's a young guy, aggressive guy, and we, we liked working together. He brought me a deal which was which he found, I think, on Realtor.com for a 37-unit building, which he said he would be willing to invest in with me. And so, again, that deal was a really good deal. The numbers made a lot of sense. I think, I think this is where people don't realize that the residential side, brokers don't necessarily understand how commercial pricing works or how commercial numbers work, per se. And so the deal was really mispriced. It was 37 units. It was an old high school that was converted to an apartment building about 20 years ago. But it was a very solid building. And I think they marketed it at about a million at the time. And even then, with those in-place numbers, the deal made sense. Like, the numbers made sense. Uh, just because on a per-unit basis, it was fairly inexpensive. We were able to talk that down some. And long story short, we ended up doing both those deals kind of simultaneously. Wow. So, again, so I think... Going into January, I had two deals under contract. So I was doing the 37 unit, which was the old high school conversion. I went back to the same banker, um, the local bank, old national bank. And again, I had a really good relationship with the banker. The numbers were very good. 
So they were, the bank was ready much sooner than I was. So they gave me a term sheet and said, hey, we can close this by the 31st of January. And I said, hey, hold on, we haven't actually finished all the other steps. Like we still have some diligence steps to work through with the seller. The second deal that we closed was I think the third deal we got into LOI, which was this 37 unit. So the, the two deals, one, the 37 unit in Michigan, the other one, the 18 unit in Chicago were progressing pretty much at the same time. That's nuts, man. So that's the law of the first deal in action right there. Yeah, it was, uh, definitely was a lot to digest and keep straight this deal versus that deal with diligence documents that we received, but worked out really well and um, both deals are performing quite nicely. That's great. Now, so you're still self-funding these now. I think you had your broker in there as well as a partner. At what point are you, are you syndicating? Yeah, so the broker, broker came in for a 50K investment. And again, because the, the deal was fairly inexpensive, we didn't need that much money to, to do the deal. We did have a big reserve because the building needed a roof. However, we still have that money in reserve because we haven't like, really had to fix the roof yet. We, we haven't. We know we'll probably do it next year. So we did that one where essentially the broker had a small slice of the deal. Um, I still have majority control of that one. Um, the next one I self-funded and then... I did another deal on my own as well. So I made the decision that I could keep my money in my IRA or whatever retirement accounts. And I was doing very well with those because I self, I basically put them into market securities that I liked. I bought Apple and some of these other stocks that did really well. And I, I like that stuff and I pay attention to it. However, business school teaches you, you can't really outperform the market very well necessarily. I like to think I can, but that's definitely debatable. However, I felt like, yeah, sure, that money can stay there, but I can't access it until I'm 60. And I don't necessarily want to wait 20 years, right? So I'm turning 40 in December. I didn't want to wait that long. And so I felt like with the Tax Cuts Act that was recently passed, taxes are probably the lowest they'll be ever in, in a long time. So I felt like I'd just cash out, take the penalty, and be able to see some of that money now and not have to wait another 20 years before I can do whatever I want to do with my life. That's fascinating. That's great, great logic, by the way, because you're right. The taxes are the lowest they've ever been. And uh, that's an extreme measure, but uh, I like it, David. I like it a lot. What are you working on now? So we just closed on a 94 unit deal, which I did syndicate. So this was a, was a pretty nice, nice deal in a college town in Michigan. It's essentially fully rented. We, we really like the deal. I, Thought that, well, first of all, I didn't have the money to do that one by myself. It was a much larger deal. But I felt like I could also bring in investors and participate with them. Again, putting some of my cash alongside investors, which investors like to see, and syndicate. So that worked very well. I mean, I basically reached out to my network, uh, people that I had worked with, or people that I knew in professional capacities. And that was a little bit of overcoming them knowing you in your management consulting role or management advisory role to real estate, but it wasn't too difficult a conversation. Um, there was very strong interest. Uh, we, we essentially got a very nice cash account buffer um, after we closed the deal to make sure that if anything came up, we were in a good place. That closed on August 9th. So again, just writing that, basically it's going to be coming up in a month. The property is doing pretty well. Um, the next thing I'm working on is I'm looking for more similar deals that would be good to provide good value to investors. That is awesome. 
Now, at what point, now I know you have this uh, management consulting business, which is very, very successful, and what you're using as almost like a cash generation business and you're plowing it into the multifamily. At what point here are, are you covering your living expenses? Like if you could walk away, when roughly could that have been? I probably could walk away before the largest syndication deal, so the, before the 94 unit deal. Because so at that point, we had about 153 or so units um, before the 94 unit deal. So yeah, that definitely covers expenses, living expenses for sure, and frankly, being very comfortable. Mm. However, um, I feel like, again, I've not been doing it for too many years, right? So I wanted to build up a bit more of a cash buffer. And frankly, the management consulting business is very interesting, and I like working with people I work with. So I mean, I'm not sure when I walk away and if I do walk away, but um, definitely working towards maybe bringing more people into the management consulting business where... I can have the right people travel more and I can travel a bit less. Ah, interesting. So you're thinking of an exit strategy out, out of that. That's awesome. And, and what's amazing is you're doing all the stuff while you're doing the management consulting business, which it sounds like is already a 40 plus hour job in the first place, right? Absolutely. And yeah, so that's great. Job, I mean, when you have clients that need things done, when you're, especially when you're on site, you're working on site as, as long as it takes. And then when you're off site, you get calls at whatever time of day and, and weekends. So Definitely demanding work, very interesting, very rewarding, and being able to see the impact you make on other organizations and have them flourish after the fact. Um, but it's actually not too different from the property business, right? So I work with private equity buyers of businesses that are looking to institute good processes to maximize the value of the asset. So very often, it's, there's just more variables on, the, on that side of it versus the property side. So one of the objections, you know, that we hear a lot is, hey, I don't have the time for this stuff. Because almost literally 100% of people who quit their job actually started with a job. And so you're obviously pretty busy. You have four kids and you have this management consulting job and somehow you're still managing to get these deals done. How are you doing all that? Well, I mean, I think you, you, find, you find the pockets of, of time that you can dedicate to it. I mean, if that means waking up earlier, staying up later, Again, I, don't, I feel like I don't need a ton of sleep, so I can go on less sleep personally, although I feel like I've been sleeping a lot more lately. So no, I think you just have to, I mean, if you, if you say you want to work towards something, you'll make the time for it. I mean, basically, I think anyone can make the time for it if they decide they will make the time for it. So yeah, you, you, you use the word decide, which is always a trigger word for me. People who make things, who decide that they want to do this, if they decide they will make it a priority, they will figure out how to do it. What's your advice to someone who's maybe in the same situation that you were a few years ago where you're like, you know, maybe they're, they're not doing real estate or maybe they're doing the buying one per year and they're like, ah, I'm not getting there fast enough. What is your advice about someone who says, hey, I want to get started with multifamily? Uh, what would you advise that they do? I, I definitely say, I think there needs to be a balance between learning and doing, right? I think there's a ton of people that I see at seminars and you see them at the seminar and the next one. And then you ask them, so what have you done since the last one? And they haven't really done too much. Um, and I understand that, I mean, people have busy lives, but I think people have to be honest with themselves and say, the trajectory I'm on isn't going to get me where I want to go, right? And so if you can be honest with yourself and say, okay, this will only get you to point A, but you want to get to point B or C or D, what do you need to change? So I would say for anyone who's really interested, I think they need to go out and buy a multifamily, right? Whether that's they buy it on their own, or they buy it with people, or they get enough courage to do it because they feel like they understand the numbers, or they take a course to do it. 
but I think the objective should be to buy something. I think once you buy the first one, there's a ton of knowledge and learnings that come with it that make the next one a lot less daunting. Just go do something. Just go, go do something. I think there, there is a tendency to just take one seminar after seminar, read one book and book and you never do anything. And it's one thing that struck me about you, Dave, when I first met you, I was like, I'm not sure. This guy's kind of quiet. Not exactly sure. And you were kind of quiet and, you know, you didn't say a lot, but all of a sudden you did a lot, right? Like you did a lot quickly. And the pattern I see with a lot of successful entrepreneurs is yes, to educate themselves. But like even you said it, you weren't actually done with the course before you started doing stuff. And, and Josh was like, hey man, you, you actually got us like finish this process first. But I think the entrepreneurial spirit is that we just want to do things. Like we want to get prepared as much as we can, but we don't necessarily have to have all the information uh, ready we don't rely on the timing being 100% perfect. What are your thoughts on that? Because yeah. timing never is really perfect. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you can never be 100% ready. I think you, you, you try to educate yourself to the point where you have an advantage in whatever you're doing, but you can't be indecisive enough that you don't do anything, right? I think at that point you're defeating yourself. So... I mean, I, I definitely would say action is very important. You have to go out and do something that makes a difference to your future self, right? So go buy the building, go buy the house, go buy the duplex. And that should be the goal, right? It's not just make a ton of offers, but then don't do anything with that. And some people listening, watching this going, yeah, David, that's great, but you had a bunch of money. You know, it's easy for you and you can hire a mentor and that's, that's great. What would you have done differently had you not had the financial resources that, that you had? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I do definitely agree that in my case, it was a bit easier. I would say the syndication process is challenging. People that I necessarily thought would invest didn't necessarily invest and others that I didn't really think would did. But yeah, I think, I think you cover this in your course too. You, you make it very accessible for someone to get credibility and build a sample potential deck that you can show investors that, that says, hey, here's what a potential deal would look like. What objections do you have? Let's talk about them. And as long as you can do that up front with people, I think you can definitely raise the same amount. That, that's what I would have done, right? So I would have gone out to the same network and kind of educated them about what I'm doing and seen what objections they had and what questions I needed to answer for them. Well, let me get it straight there. You still would have proceeded. Yes. It would not have stopped you. No. Okay. That's awesome. So inspiring, man. I, it was great. And it was great seeing you present at Dealmaker Live when you kind of went deep on that 37 unit. I think one of the things that, that you have, and I see that in common with people who are doing deals, regardless of their situation, lots of money, no money at all. One thing they all have and you have is hustle. That's the thing. And it's like, it doesn't really matter what your circumstances, you're like committed, right? You're like just committed. This is what I want. And that's so awesome and, and nothing can stop you. So David, how can, uh, how can people connect with you? You can definitely uh, reach me out my email at david at capesierracapital.com. So that's C-A-P-E-S-I-E-R-R-A capital.com. Or you can call me directly on my cell, 773-263-2657. Back to what you just said. I mean, I think hustle is very important. I mean, I came to the United States with $1,000 in my pocket at 17 really not knowing too many people here. I had a friend from high school in Sierra Leone who was very helpful and their family was very helpful. But ultimately, you, you kind of have to make good decisions and put yourself in a position to succeed, right? I think if you want to make an excuse or 
I guess I'm not sure who I attributed the quote to, but whether you believe you can do it or you can't do it, you're correct, right? Whatever you Henry believe. Ford. Henry Ford said that. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So you just have to believe that you can do something and truly put yourself in a position to succeed. Go, go find the resources, find the right people, find the knowledge, and find the money to get it done. So good. Dave, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you very much, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. The one thing people that do deals have in common is they have hustle. Literally, that's the common thread. We have different demographics, different financial situations, different networks. It really actually doesn't matter. Young, old, too old, too young. It really doesn't matter what you have, what you don't have. It literally doesn't because we have examples of people who come out of the gate with a bunch of money, do deals. We have examples of people who have no money and do deals. It really doesn't matter. What they all do have is hustle. They have a commitment to the outcome, which is financial freedom. It's one of the reasons I love the book by Hal Elrod called The Miracle Equation. It came out just a few months ago. Highly recommend you put it on your to-do list because it talks about goals in a much different way than I was taught around goals, which is, you know, we're taught about goals to be measurable, specific, you know, with a deadline. And Hal argues that forget the deadline. Commit to the outcome for as long as it takes. There can be no other option. Okay, so if it takes you 12 months to do a deal, oh gosh, that's a really long time. Okay, or 18 months, who cares? Okay, who cares if it takes you a really long time to do a first deal? Stick with it, okay? You've got to stick with it and commit to the outcome because that law of the first deal is so universal. It's so powerful. Trust me. Well, don't just trust me. David just talked about it. The deals will just come to you. You'll become this magnet for deals and money. They'll just focus like a laser on that first deal regardless of how long it takes. Now, my observation is that that... I think eventually everyone will achieve their goals. There's no question about that. But I also observe that people who have mentors, especially people who have done what you want to do, accelerate their timeline significantly. And David is no exception to that. Uh, he was one of our mentoring students. Shout out to Josh Sterling, great guy, uh, full-time apartment building investor, syndicator, all of our mentors are full-time syndicators. And I'm actually blessed to have these people. They're really hard to find and, by the way, to manage, right? Because these guys don't have to work. So it's really hard to tell them, hey, I need you to fill out a time card or do this, the other thing so you can get paid. And they're like, eh, nah, it feels too much like a job. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> anyway, great group of guys. And um, so if you want to learn from the best in the industry who are working with us to help you guys quit your jobs, then find you find out and see if a mentoring is right for you. You can do that by going to themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor, and you can schedule a call with us and see if it's right for you. That's themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. I hope that you guys were inspired by, by David. And I just love that question at the end, what would you have done if you didn't have the money? And he goes, wouldn't have changed a thing. And I love that. And that goes back to the hustle and the commitment to the outcome, which is financial freedom. Thank you so much for your time and attention. I'll catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.